The divorce is final. Now you may wonder what in the world that title has to do with the text as you've heard it read. If any of our listeners by means of sermon audio have not read the text, please read Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 14. Now today, for the sake of our audio listeners, we had an Older Testament reading from the book of Ezekiel chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. I invite you to read that as well. In chapter 5, we find John has arrived in the courtroom of God the King, the Supreme Judge, just as a sentence is being handed down. Now, if you remember from the last time we were together in this study, we talked about and understood this idea of the throne of God the Father, and that a throne, okay, maybe we associate it with the King or Queen of England or whatever it may be, But in that day, in that time, and in that place, it was associated with legal judicial authority. Because a king or a queen are not some person who parade around with a crown on their head. They rule. They administer justice. They make laws. They turn laws around. So the first thing we want to know from this passage is the meaning of the mysterious scroll and the seven seals given the fascination that many people have had with the book of Revelation, it's not unusual to find that opinions about the meaning of the various parts of it are varied and many. And the scroll and the seven seals is one of the most popular of these items of speculation. I think that most of us in this room remember the tragedy that happened in Waco, Texas back in 1993. I don't know, it was upwards of 50, 75 men, women, and children were immolated, destroyed, burned alive by the forces of the U.S. government attacking a crazy religious sect for sure. But a key element in that tragedy was the fascination of that sect, the Branch Davidians, and their focus on the book of Revelation, and especially the meaning of the identity of the scroll and the seven seals. Now, the leader of that group claimed that he was the only person on earth who knew the meaning of the scroll. So he was the only one who could open up its meaning to the rest of the world. He called himself David Koresh, but he was far from being the only person to be totally wrong about this material. Much, much earlier... Then David Koresh was Cyrus I. Schofield, who was even more profoundly wrong about it, if that can be the case. And as we all know, his study notes, as they were called, published in a King James Version of the Bible, have influenced, even to this day, hundreds of thousands of otherwise right-thinking Christians. So the first thing that's immediate is the similarity between the language of Revelation chapter 5 in these first 14 verses and the reading from Ezekiel chapter 2. As we heard from that reading, the similarity between these is almost total. The Apostle John has intentionally using the exact wording from the prophet Ezekiel. That being the case, we need to understand what Ezekiel was doing in his day. Ezekiel was a prophet who was sent by God He was sent to warn the Israelites that God's judgment was going to fall upon them for their idolatry and rebellion against him. Notice now, he's being sent to God's so-called people. 
He's not being sent to pagans. He's not being sent to the Muslims or the Democrats or anybody else. Get this into your head. God is most concerned about the behavior and the disposition of the heart of his people. The pagans are already gone. Their lot is judgment. But listen again to what we read earlier in the first part of Ezekiel, chapter 2, 3 to 4. I'm going to read it from a slightly paraphrased translation. Son of man, he said, I am sending you to the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. This is God speaking of the Israelites. They are a stubborn and hard-hearted people. But I am sending you to say to them, this is what Yahweh God says. And then we find in the rest of the book of Ezekiel, his report of the impending judgment upon the city and the temple at Jerusalem. Now this was in Ezekiel's day. Because they, the Israelites, refused to heed the words of their prophets. The Lord, quote, came to them. He came against them, that is. In 587 B.C., that is when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed the city and carried the Jews off into exile. God had warned them repeatedly that if they did not change their ways, he would come to them, quote unquote, come to them in judgment for their rebellion. And that is precisely what he did. So here then is the interplay between the apostle John, in his day, and the prophet Ezekiel, back in his day. And the common thread is their calling to declare to the world that God's judgment is about to fall upon Israel. Now, recall that in chapter 1, we have the theme of the entire book of Revelation. The judgment coming of the Son of God against whom? Who is he coming to judge, according to Revelation chapter 1? Those who pierced him. John was told that furthermore, the time of that coming was near, and in that time and that day, it was coming quickly. So, we see that there is a major difference between the sins of Israel against her God in Ezekiel's day, and the depths to which they have sunk in the time of Christ. The Israel of Jesus' day was guilty of a far greater sin than their ancestors in Ezekiel's time. Our Westminster Confession, a shorter catechism, reminds us that some sins in themselves are more heinous in the sight of God than others. This is an example. I want you to hear again the words that Jesus himself spoke against the leaders of Israel prior to his being crucified. And as you listen to this, note well the judicial legal language, the judicial flavor of it all. Matthew 23, 31 to 38, I'm reading it from the NIV this time. He says, speaking to the leaders of the Jews, the leaders of Israel, so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. 
Notice the timestamp. This wasn't something happening 2,000 years later. It was coming upon that generation. And then he says, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I have to stop there and point out that that last phrase, like too much else that is said in the Newer Testament, is directly related to the Old Covenant Testament, the Older Testament, and God's law. If there was disease like leprosy present in uh, an Israelite's house and people were sick or dying, one of the priests would go to the house and inspect the house, and if in his judgment it was infected, in other words, nobody could go there without risk of being infected, it would be declared desolate and torn down or burned. And this is what Jesus says about the entire city of Jerusalem and especially the temple, the house of the temple. That, my friends, what he says here, this Matthew 23, chapter 31 to 38, this is a death sentence. This is what a district attorney does in presenting his closing arguments to the judge and the jury. But this is the supreme judge, the greatest legal scholar, Christ the King. And he makes his charge in anticipation of what Israel will do in their ultimate act of breaking covenant with Yahweh, the true God. Now, we can just as accurately say that Christ is charging Israel with infidelity. That is, with spiritual and legal adultery against her husband and king who is God Almighty. We can just as accurately say that because that is really the way God himself viewed the whole thing. God had announced long ago to those people that he viewed his relationship to Israel as that of a husband to his wife. Now, listen again to the book of Ezekiel. This is a different chapter, but listen to this language. Ezekiel 16, verse 8, reading from the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord says to Israel, Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age of love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. This is the declaration of Yahweh God. Now you may say, oh, that's a real quaint, nice language. It has sort of a romantic flair to it, right? Friends, that is the language of a marriage covenant in ancient Israel. Those are the words that a husband would speak to a potential or his uh, soon-to-be wife, an engagement declaration, in other words. And back in that day, an engagement was just as serious as a marriage covenant. You didn't break an engagement without serious consequences. But this is God Almighty speaking to and about the old covenant nation of Israel. Listen to Ezekiel 16, 31 to 32. And we've just gone ahead a few verses from this chapter that I just read where he declared his love for Israel, that he would take them as his bride. But now listen to what he's saying in a few verses later. You build your pagan shrines on every street corner and your altars to idols in every square. Yet you aren't like other prostitutes because you don't want to be paid. You are an adulterous wife who prefers strangers to her husband. The nation is charged with adultery because of their worshiping other gods, because of their alliances with pagan nations. And in the context of human marriage, adultery is one of the two grounds for which the Lord allows for divorce. 
in the context of his covenantal marriage to Israel, that nation committed spiritual and political adultery many times. I think one thing that we miss in our day, maybe it's a little more obvious when you're reading these Older Testament texts, but it's just as obvious today, but we've been taught to not even think about it. Because we don't realize that God's word applies to all areas of life, and there is no neutrality between belief and unbelief. So if you were dominated by a pagan king and nation back then, then you had to adopt their religion and their gods. Or if you voluntarily went after the pagan gods of some other nation back then, then you voluntarily were also bringing yourself into their political system. It's no different today, friends. The contrast is still there. Either it's God's politics or the devil's politics. God's law or man's humanistic law. Covenantal marriage in Israel... That being the case, they committed spiritual and political adultery many times. The Lord patiently forgave her. But you see, at a certain point, there was no more forgiveness to be had. Judgment had come. I'm not making this up. People, they don't seem to realize that God's covenant are real and that they get lost in all the dispensational nonsense about national Israel and and the Jews and all the rest of it. Listen to Jeremiah 3 verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out to commit adultery. So you see the mysterious seven-seal scroll that John sees is in fact a scroll of divorce. It is Yahweh's final decree of divorce against adulterous, faithless Israel. The Apostle John is the witness to the divorce of Israel. And the seven seals are symbolic of God's judgment. Back in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 18, God outlined both the blessings and the cursings that he would bring against Israel if they did not keep his covenant. Now remember, this is in Leviticus, much, much earlier than Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Leviticus 28, 26, 18, After all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Leviticus 26, 21, then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. By the way, let me just stop there. If you go back to that Matthew 23 chapter, when Jesus is pronouncing that judgment, he's pronouncing it against the leaders of Israel and therefore the whole nation. And if you compare it, you'll see that there are seven woes. Woe to you! Woe to you! There are seven of those. It corresponds exactly to what is said in Leviticus. I will punish you seven times more plagues than in Leviticus 26, 23 to 24. If by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I will punish you seven times for your sins. And then one more, 26 to 27 of the same chapter. After all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Those seven seals on the scroll are uh, seals of divorcement, and they have a powerful symbolic meaning. They call to mind the covenant judgments 
that God promised in the earliest days of his relationship to Israel. I, I don't know how you can not see the, the one-to-one correspondence. But if you will look back now at Revelation chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, there's a bit of a crisis. There doesn't appear to be anyone worthy to open the seven sealed scrolls so that the divorce of Israel could be handed down. And that caused John to weep. Why would he weep? I mean, why would this make him so emotional? Well, because you see, to John, that would have meant that all the faithful martyrs who had died at the hands of adulterous Israel and Jerusalem have died in vain since their blood would not be avenged. Ah, but there is one and was one who is worthy to open the seals. If you look again at Revelation 5, 5 to 7, I'm not going to read it, but just look at it in your your Bibles, verses 5, 6, and 7. One of the 24 elders tells John that as a matter of fact, there is someone who can unseal the scroll, and that is no less than the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And there's no mistaking who that is. Those words, lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the, the... These are all Old Testament phrases that describe Christ Jesus, the Messiah. The elder tells John that he, the Lord, has prevailed or overcome. The Lord overcame death on the cross. He prevailed over sin. He alone is without sin, and he alone is worthy to pronounce the supreme judge's decree against Old Covenant Israel. But John no sooner hears those encouraging words that he turns around to see this. Now, I'm speculating here, but, you know, he's been told it's the lion of the, uh, the, lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, you know, these powerful images. So I'm, I'm, I'm speculating that he turns around to see this, but instead of a mighty lion, he sees a lamb, a lamb that's been bloodied as though it's been slain. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As one commentator put it, and I quote, The great trouble with the Jewish religion in Jesus' day was they were looking for a mighty lion to come and lead them from under Roman rule. They were scandalized, embarrassed, and outraged to instead be greeted by a little lamb, end quote. But as John sees this lamb, it doesn't look so meek and powerless. It has seven horns which symbolize perfect strength and might and its ability to carry out the decrees of the scroll. It has seven eyes, symbolizing perfect wisdom and knowledge. And they are defined to be the seven spirits of God. So in other words, the Holy Spirit, this is an extrapolation, but I think it's another one of these evidences in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, as we affirm in the Nicene Creed. And since this lamb was slain by the leaders of the Jews at Jerusalem, he too, this lamb, has a claim against them. His blood too is counted among the righteous blood shed on earth. Blood that cries out to God for vengeance. The Lord is the one who now takes the scroll of judgment from the right hand of his father so that the avenging of the righteous blood may begin. And as the Lord takes the scroll, it provokes a response in heaven. And that's what we read in verses 8, 9, and 10, if you'll take another look at that. Revelation 5, 8, 9, and 10. Now, there are three things that we should pay attention to in this part of the chapter. First of all, we see that when when Christ takes the seven-seal scroll, as I just said, it it provokes that outburst. And included in that outburst of worship are the prayers of the saints. 
excuse me, <clears throat> and the prayers of the saints are compared to golden bowls full of incense. Now, <clears throat> this kind of worship evokes the images of the priestly offerings and worship in the temple. Maybe not to you, but it would to those people who heard this and read this initially. And the prayers of these saints are most likely prayers for deliverance and cries for help to God, as they are no doubt being persecuted by the leaders of the Jews. But then the second thing, in line with this being priestly type worship, you see that it is the church which is now offering the worship. Pay attention, dispensationalist friends. It is the church, clearly, in this book that you love so much, that is offering the worship. And there's nothing here that indicates this is fast-forwarded 2,000 years later. Nothing. Indeed, in verse 10, it says that Christ has made us, meaning the church, kings and priests to our God. These are earth-shaking statements. This is the shaking of the foundations. Those are words that clearly show that a major shift has now taken place in God's program. You know, in the old times, it was Israel who offered the true worship to God and offered the incense. In the older covenant, it was national Israel who were the kings and priests to God. But now that Christ has come, the old has passed away and something new has taken its place. Or the next thing that was planned for all along, I guess you could pair it to, you know, one of those rockets going up in the sky. And as it reaches a certain altitude, the bottom half of it falls off. And then it continues on. It's something you, you could think of it sort of like that. But, but that, that's why this something new is taking its place. You know, the flower is blooming, you might say. That's why these saints and those creatures and elders are singing a new song. Old Israel was rapidly fading, but the new Israel was just as rapidly coming into being. And again... <clears throat> dispensationalists and those who stick their noses up at the air and accuse us of teaching, quote, replacement theology, you had better think twice, my friends, because, to quote someone from the book of Acts, you may wind up finding you are opposing God Almighty. For me, I wouldn't want to be in that position. Thirdly, the last part of verse 10 shows you the vastness and the power of Christ's redeeming work on this earth. It says that we shall reign with him on the earth. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek shall inherit the earth. He didn't say the meek shall inherit a harp and float on clouds for all eternity. He didn't say the meek would escape the, the, the tribulation in the rapture. He said the meek will inherit the earth. And that means those who are obedient to God and his law, those who are the ones who inherit the earth. See, we have this mistaken notion that meekness is some sort of, you know, limp-wristed, pasty, uh, slightly effeminate way of behaving. Uh, no, the, the Greek term translated meek there is connected to the idea of bridling a powerful horse. And so what he's saying is that the meek are the ones who discipline themselves according to God's spirit to be obedient to God's law word. That's what it means. These are the ones who will inherit the earth. Having dominion over the earth, that's what Adam, the first man, was given by God, but he lost it when he fell into sin. But now the second Adam, Christ Jesus, has come. That dominion mandate has been restored to his people. 
We, the church of God, the new Israel of God, are promised increasing victories, increasing rule and dominion. And his people bring the good news of Christ and the law of God as we do that to the world. He has promised to bring our work for him to fulfillment. Now let me just interject here. That for those of us who embrace and hold the biblical, post-millennial, partial preterist view of this, maybe we haven't done the best job of explaining that holding this view doesn't mean that there, there may be vast, long periods of God bringing his judgments again against his rebellious people. Or pouring out his wrath upon evil. But that doesn't mean that what the Bible teaches is wrong or false. Listen again, or look again, at verses 11 to 14 of Revelation 5. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So in this chapter, we see two songs are being sung or chanted. One, as the Son of God takes the scroll from his Father's hand and proves his worthiness. And here he is proclaimed Worthy to receive due honor and glory. He is then double worthy. Worthy in the first place to unleash the judgments against his persecutors. And in the second place to get the glory for himself. His rightful glory. And then in verses 13 and 14 we are told that all creatures break forth into this doxological praise of his name. You see friends, this is a part of the victory message of the book of Revelation. As Dr. Rustuni called it many, many years ago... This is an eschatology of victory. One day all creation will acknowledge Christ as Lord. And John is showing us here what is in fact the goal and destiny of all history. That is the total recognition of Christ's lordship and the eternal glory of of God through Christ Jesus. And that prior to his final coming. Now in John's day... He and his fellow believers were about to experience times of severe persecution. I mean, they were already in dealing with it and had been at the hands of the Jews. But it's about to get a lot worse from the Romans. Already they were seeing the unimaginable spectacle of Israel joining with the Antichrist beast of of Rome. My friends, those Christians needed to understand that in spite of what they were in for and had been dealing with, history was not something ruled over by random occurrence. Or by evil men. Or even by the devil. History is ruled from the throne of God Almighty in Christ Jesus. They needed to understand that Christ is king now. He is reigning now. And even now. All kings in heaven and on earth were bound and are bound to admit of his kingship. Those believers needed to see themselves in the true light. They were not forgotten troops on some distant lonely outpost fighting a losing battle. They were victorious warrior kings and priests, waging war and overcoming. They were and are predestined to victory with the absolute assurance of conquest and dominion. 
They needed a biblical worldview, a Bible-based, God-centered understanding of where history was going. And that all of it, all of history, created and controlled by God's personal and total government, is moving unavoidably toward the universal and complete dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look, I realize that for those believers, and I will say especially for us today, as we look around and we see the decadence all around us, it's hard with our eyes fixed on those circumstances to believe that before Christ returns, the whole world, I mean, broadly speaking, I don't mean each and every person in it, but broadly speaking, the world will have become Christian. A few weeks ago, I uh, gave you a college football reference. And even though we're sort of at the end of that season here now, I think this one will still be relevant. It's about the football team for the, from the University of Wisconsin many years ago. On a balmy afternoon in October 1982, the Badger Stadium of the University of Wisconsin was packed with almost 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin fans. They had shown up there to watch their Badgers football team take on the Michigan State Spartans. Now, everybody knew that Michigan State had a much better team than the University of Wisconsin. But what seemed most bizarre and unusual that day was that as the score became more and more out of balance, I'll say lopsided, in favor of Michigan, as everybody expected it probably would, What was so bizarre is that there were great outbursts of applause and shouts for joy from the Wisconsin fans. How on earth could they bring themselves to cheer while their own team was losing? Well, as it turned out, about 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in the Major League 1982 World Series game Three. That's why they were cheering. Many of the fans at that college football game were listening to the World Series on their portable radios. And they were responding, listen carefully, they were responding to something other than their immediate circumstance. Beloved friends, that is what Christ Jesus expects us to do. We are to fix our eyes not on what we see, but what is unseen. Mark Rustuni said some years ago about his father's hope and his father's articulation of the eschatology of victory. He said, my father was optimistic about the future, not because of what he saw in man, but because of what he saw in God Almighty. God's plan for victory, my friends, is far more real than the passing moments of our present circumstances. Let us fix our eyes and our hope unendingly on that plan. Let us pray.